I was going to say one of our friends, but we don't know him. We don't know Palm Grit. We don't know <laughs> I do follow him on Twitter. We follow him on Twitter. We're, tw- we're Twitter friends. <laughs> he doesn't follow well, us. If he doesn't follow you, you're not Twitter friends. Okay. We follow him on Twitter. <laughs> Right, welcome back to the last week in medicine. It's December sixteenth, two thousand nineteen, and this is our sixth episode. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today I'm rejoined by my trusty co-pilot Austin Rupp. Hello, I'm back. Welcome back, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> we missed you. Although Dr. Babel was an excellent co-host, that she was. I, think I listened as an audience member. Loved the pod. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, good work. <laughs> Glad you'll have me back. And. Uh, yeah, excited to be back. Oh, good. Um, well, did you do anything fun last week? Hmm. Um, I can't remember. Honestly, pages <laughs> and patient care are just, just working. And I'm just my, working my mind is cloudy. My <laughs> mind is cloudy. Yeah, I also don't really remember any of last week. It's all just <laughs> a haze. But you know, got good things to look forward to. Yep. The new Star Wars movie is coming out. (laughs) (laughs) So pretty pumped about that. Are you guys going? Probably. I mean, I'm not a huge Mm. Star Wars guy. I mean, you still haven't even watched The Mandalorian, so I don't even know why we're having this conversation. It's true. true. I'll have to come over to your house for your Disney+. Plus. Yeah, you can just use my account. Oh, heard it here first. (laughs) Give out the password to all of our three listeners. (laughs) Well, just a reminder for our listeners, the goal of this podcast is to help you stay up to date on internal medicine. Every week, we will share our favorite articles from the major medical journals and try to distill the big take-home points. Also, this is for education purposes, and your medical decision-making should not be based solely on something you heard on this podcast. Well, the first study I wanted to talk about was published online last week in JAMA Internal Medicine. And the title is Risk of Nephrogenic Systemic Fibrosis in Patients with Stage 4 or 5 Chronic Kidney Disease Receiving a Group 2 Gadolinium-Based Contrast Agent. The first author was Dr. Sean A. Wollen. Uh, Now, I did not learn about nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, or NSF, until later in my training, so I think a little background may be helpful. And I got most of this from a commentary um, in the journal by Dr. Sagar Maripuri and Dr. Kirsten Johansson. So back in the 1990s and early 2000s, a small number of patients with chronic kidney disease developed a debilitating skin condition characterized by diffuse skin thickening and fibrosis. And some of these patients were also found to have fibrosis of the heart, lungs, liver, and skeletal muscle. And these changes were irreversible and associated with a higher mortality. The cause was initially a mystery, but eventually people figured out that all these patients had been exposed to gadolinium-based contrast agents for MRIs, and histopathologic evaluation revealed gadolinium deposition in skin biopsy specimens of affected Mm. patients. So in 2007, the FDA put a black box warning on gadolinium, and nephrologists started recommending avoiding contrast-enhanced MRIs for all patients with CKD. Uh, Then in 2010, the FDA FDA updated their warning and specified that three gadolinium agents were responsible for most cases of NSF. And they said that other gadolinium-based contrast agents could be used with caution. So there are newer agents termed group two agents, which the American College of Radiology has said can be safely used in patients with CKD 
even those undergoing dialysis. Uh, but many people, myself included, are not aware uh, of these newer contrast agents and have still been avoiding MRI contrast altogether in patients who are at risk. And this can be a problem if you have a patient with suspected stroke or like an epidural abscess where contrast would be very helpful, but they have like chronic kidney disease, stage four or five, and you kind of just feel stuck without any diagnostic options. And so mm -hmm. maybe that delays care or delays the diagnosis. So that brings us to the actual journal article. This study is a systematic review and a meta-analysis of 16 studies, five of which were prospective including 4,931 patients with stage 4 or 5 kidney disease, defined as a GFR less than 30, who received a group 2 gadolinium-based contrast agent. And the pooled incidence of nephrogenic systemic fibrosis was 0 of 4,931 hey <laughs> patients. Zero patients. Uh, so the majority How of many? the patients, <laughs> zero. What percentage? <laughs> Uh, zero oh, percent. Okay, gotcha. The majority of patients, uh, 3,167, received a contrast agent called uh, gadobinate <laughs> dimeglumine. And uh, only 230 received gadoteridol, which is the agent that we use at our hospital. Um, but in every agent used, zero people got NSF. Uh, now, the upper bound of their 95% confidence interval was 0.07%. So they said that the risk of NSF from a group 2 agent is likely less than 0.07%. <laughs> but you can't actually calculate an absolute risk because there were no events, right? So right. it could be zero. It could be one in a million. It could be one in 2,000. You would have to have like an insanely high sample size to really figure that out. But I think that this is a pretty compelling evidence that these newer contrast agents are actually safe. And for most patients, it's probably better to get the MRI with contrast instead of delaying diagnosis or misdiagnosing the problem because you're afraid of the patient getting NSF. Agreed. Yeah, I think this is um, you know, fairly compelling because it's something that we hear about and talk about a reasonable amount, but I've never seen it. And apparently it doesn't exist. No, definitely. <laughs> That's what they're saying, right? Definitely exists. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> it's those, those original gadolinium-based ones that are the bad actors. And I, I think the, the issue with this is, like, even if one in, in 4,000 got it, I mean, that may be unacceptable because it, it is such a terrible disease to get, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't have any events. So it does make you wonder, you know, but, but definitely the risk is low. It does so, seem like ongoing ongoing study and sort of reporting of NSF is going to be beneficial here. But uh, yeah, yeah, pretty interesting. All right. Okay. So you have our next paper. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about metoprolol for the prevention of acute exacerbations of COPD, also called black COPD, by Dr. Dransfield and colleagues at UAB, published in the New England Journal of Medicine this week. This doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? COP, law preventing COPD? Anyway, um, we've all been taught that beta blockers aren't a good idea in obstructive lung disease, or at least not in patients with active bronchospasm. And um, this has flip-flopped and reversed, and uh, it seems like the prevailing wisdom has changed, and now it's okay to give metoprolol and COPD. Anyway, we'll get more. We'll get into that later, but but 
a small anecdote. I actually had a patient recently who went to the ICU because I didn't give them a Toprolol. Because you didn't COPD. give them? Yeah. Oh, did they get like AFib RVR or something? <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, the, the poem fellow said I was an idiot, and so now <laughs> I'll always remember. <laughs> Metoprolol is okay in COPD. It, it's obviously more complicated than that, but this the point is that this continues to be an area of, um, you know, contradictions and debate and sort of mm-hmm. um, lack of clarity. So let's anyway, make it more muddy. Let's, let's make it more muddy. Let's okay. move forward. Okay. Um, so... The thought here was that beta blockers might be helpful for the prevention of exacerbations of COPD. That was based on previous observational studies and meta-analyses that they might reduce the risk of of exacerbation and death in moderate to severe COPD. Which is totally counterintuitive. Right, that's what I would, yeah. Yeah. But maybe people were like, oh, well, we used to think the same thing in heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, and maybe a little bit of beta blocker in your life is a good thing. Exactly. So they decide, we, we, these guys decided to do a randomized controlled trial. So they randomized 532 patients across 26 centers in the U.S. Um, they had to have confirmed moderate, at least moderate COPD by PFTs and were deemed at risk for exacerbation by several things. They either had to have received steroids or antibiotics in the last year. They either they had to present to the hospital for a COPD exacerbation or be on supplemental oxygen for COPD. That seems like almost all COPD years to me, but... Um, neither here nor there. So they excluded patients who had an indication for beta blocker. That's important. Mm. No indication for beta blocker. They just took patients with COPD and they randomized them to metoprolol or placebo. Um, Notably, the metoprolol group had a higher rate of exacerbation within the preceding year than the placebo group. And so it was thought that maybe they might be a little, that group of patients might have been a little sicker than the placebo group. Yeah, it was like 63% of them versus like 50% in the placebo arm. Right. Which was statistically significant. Yes. Yes. Uh, After randomization, patients were followed for 378 days. The primary endpoint was the median time to COPD exacerbation. And um, there were a lot of hodge, there, there was a hodgepodge of secondary endpoints. Um, I won't go through it all here, but exacerbations of COPD were defined a little differently than gold criteria, and they were graded on a severity scale. Uh, again, notably, severe and very severe equaled hospitalization or intubation. So mm-hmm. keep that in mind. Um, the results, drum roll. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm really bad at that. Sorry. (laughs) Shout out to uh, Christmas Vacation. Anyway, (laughs) we're negative. Results were negative. (laughs) And the trial was stopped early for futility and safety concerns. Futility. Next article. Yeah. (laughs) This Uh, was futile. Yes. But but seriously, median time to exacerbation was not statistically different in unadjusted and adjusted analyses. So and same, it was like 200-something days yeah. in each arm. Yeah, 208 and like 220-something. I, I can see why they just shut it down. Yeah, it wasn't going to happen for them. So <laughs> packed up and went home. Um, the metoprolol group, the, the paper makes sort of – the paper and the abstract talk about this. Um, the metoprolol group experienced more severe and very severe exacerbations and uh, so, so they required hospitalization or intubation more often than the placebo group for their exacerbations. But this was a secondary analysis and be, should be taken with a grain of salt for numerous reasons. Um, the, all the other secondary endpoints were, were basically negative. There were some minor 
and seemingly insignificant differences in some dyspnea and COPD-related scoring systems between the two groups that maybe suggested increased symptom burden in the metoprolol arm. But again, these were secondary endpoints. And those are like based on subjective scales yeah, too, right? Yeah. So and they all have crazy to... names too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so negative study, primary endpoint oh, negative. Oh, neutral study, N- I yeah, guess. Neutral yeah, neutral study. You're didn't right. really have an effect. Didn't have an effect. Um, one of our, or Josh Farkas at Palmcrit of MCrit. I was going to say one of our friends, but we don't know him. We don't know Palmcrit. We don't know <laughs> I MCrit. I do follow him on Twitter. We follow him on Twitter. We're, tw- we're Twitter friends. <laughs> he doesn't follow well, us. If he doesn't follow you, you're not Twitter friends. Okay. We follow him on Twitter. <laughs> he did a thoughtful blog post about this article and makes some really good points. Check it out if you want. Um, he argues that the secondary endpoints shouldn't be, shouldn't be taken too seriously because the study was stopped prematurely, increasing statistical noise. The stats are not robust. There is no cohesive or coherent pattern of harm across the secondary endpoints, and baseline imbalances existed between the two groups like we talked about earlier. So major takeaways for me were that metoprolol does not reduce COPD exacerbations. We should probably give it if the patient need it, needs it. Don't give it if they don't. And ongoing confusion and flip-flopping can be expected. <laughs> I'm not going to change my practice based on this, although as aforementioned, I have recently changed my practice <laughs> within the last week <laughs> Yeah, that COPD or that metoprolol in COPD with an indication for metoprolol is safe and probably should be given. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, you can imagine a patient with like AFib or heart failure reduced ejection fraction, if they're tolerating a beta blocker. I would just leave it on, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's just a straight-up COPD patient who has no reason to be on a beta blocker, you should definitely not start one. This study did not show that that was helpful. Right. And it maybe was harmful. Right. Okay. Cool. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. I think... Beta blockers, man. <laughs> beta blockers, man. <laughs> Don't you always... I feel like COPD is mostly chart lore anyway. What? <laughs> like, oh, man. You know, how many of our patients have COPD with no PFTs, or smoking history. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I feel like I at least require them to have a smoking right, history. Right, right. Part of the, or, part you of know, the disease. Or they grew up with a wood-burning stove in their hut. <laughs> Chart lore. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that was that was good, though. I mean, I'm glad this they... This was in New England Journal. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that we that we did that trial. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, now we can I'm glad we also put had a that blog question post. To, to rest, I guess. Yeah. Hey, Austin, yeah. what do you think happens if you give 540,000 international units of vitamin D3 to critically <laughs> ill patients with vitamin D deficiency? Um, they probably live longer. They probably get off the vents quicker. They probably improves their blood pressure probably does a lot, right? We, yeah. We're on the vitamin D train here at uh, Last Week in Medicine, aren't we? Oh, man. Uh, so it actually does nothing. Oh, okay. okay. So there's a new study out in the New England Journal from the Pedal Network uh, that was studying acute lung injury, and they decided to do some vitamin D shenanigans as well. <laughs> and so I guess there was this earlier trial, the Vital ICU trial. It was like 475 patients where maybe there's some trends toward improved mortality but the study wasn't really big enough to prove a mortality benefit. It's um, that vital network, man. <laughs> they got everything. <laughs> so they, in, in the pedal network, they had identified 1,360 patients with vitamin D deficiency, and so they randomized them into placebo or giving them 
540,000 international units of vitamin D entirely. Um, and uh, what they found was they could get their vitamin D numbers to go up pretty quickly. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, but there was like no difference in outcomes. And in fact, there was actually a higher observed mortality in the vitamin D arm, um, but it was not statistically significant. So anyway, I just thought, you know, I would bring that up to another nail in the coffin of vitamin D ever. I don't think that coffin can be pried open at this point. <laughs> outside of bone health. Okay, well, one more article, and you're going to love this one, Austin. Uh, <laughs> it was published online this week in the BMJ, formerly the British Medical Journal, and it's titled Political Events and Mood Among Young Physicians. Here we go. Uh, the first <laughs> author is Dr. Elena Frank, and the primary investigator is Dr. Srijan Sen. Uh, the study authors are running something called the Intern Health Study, uh, which has been enrolling medical interns in the United States since 2016. And every night at 8 p.m., study participants get an app notification on their phone that asks, on a scale of 1 to 10, how is your mood today? And uh, the participants are reimbursed for their time. Like, I think it was like $50 or something like that. And they had data on 2,345 interns for this study. 55% uh, were female and 22% were in an internal medicine residency. Hmm. And after the 2016 presidential election, the study authors noticed a dramatic drop in the mood of interns. Four what happened in greater, 2016? Well, I just said the presidential well, election. I know, but <laughs> you didn't say what happened. Oh, okay. So there was a After fourfold. Donald Trump was elected. <laughs> they noticed a dramatic drop, though. It was fourfold greater than any other day that they had tracked, uh, with women experiencing double the mood drop as men. And they thought this was pretty interesting, so they decided to see if there were you know, significant mood changes with other large political events. So they came up with a list of noteworthy political and non-political events in the United States in 2017 and 2018 uh, based on a summary from the History Channel. Hmm. Yes, that's the same History Channel <laughs> that brought you ancient aliens, <laughs> swamp people, love swamp people, UFO love hunters. Swamp people. So then they, they got this list of events and then they queried Google Trends to see what date had peak public interest within the United States. Then they used paired t-tests to compare the mean mood for the week following that event and the mean mood for the four weeks prior to the event. So for the results, the biggest decline in mood was observed after the 2016 presidential election, and the next biggest was the presidential inauguration. <laughs> the magnitude of the drop was the same as when interns started their internship duties in July, which is a time associated with significant stress and a five-fold increase in depression. There were also statistically significant drops in mood following the initiation of a Muslim travel ban and with the Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation hearings. I do remember that week being extremely stressful. <laughs> it's all stressful, isn't it? <laughs> there was an increase in mood after the president signed an executive order to keep migrant families at the U.S.-Mexico border together and when a federal spending bill failed to include funding for a border wall. There was no difference observed when the Senate failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which surprised me. I mean, you remember that night when Senator John McCain walked in and gave Mitch McConnell the big thumbs down? That was so epic. I can't. I, you're, you're much more tuned into this than I I was am. watching that on C-SPAN. <laughs> I mean, that was a great moment for the Maverick. May he rest in peace. Always. 
Although shortly after that, he voted to end debate on a $1.5 trillion tax cut. So whatever, John. <laughs> Still, I wish he was alive today. Yes, we'd all be better off, I think. Uh, but we digress. So uh, they compared moods before and after big non-political events as well, including the Super Bowl, where Ooh. the New England Patriots staged the largest comeback in Super Bowl history to defeat the Atlantic Atlanta Falcons. <laughs> TB12. Um, <laughs> there was the solar eclipse, Hurricane Irma. The solar eclipse that President Donald Trump stared directly at. <laughs> that one? Oh, that, yeah. That's yeah. the one. <laughs> okay. Um, there was the Parkland school shooting. And the biggest event of 2018, the royal wedding of Prince Harry to Meghan Markle. And for all of these non-political events that were examined, no change in No mood. change. No change. So what does this study really show? Is it that young physicians are just a bunch of bleeding heart liberals? <laughs> are they just snowflakes. a bunch of whiny snowflakes. snowflake millennials? No, I don't think that's what oh, this okay. this shows. I think I think there's a lot of righteous anger among young physicians. I think young physicians are a diverse group of people and we take care of a diverse group of patients and we were rightfully worried that electing a racist, sexist, xenophobic liar to the presidency <laughs> could have negative consequences for our patients and the healthcare system. I mean, Republicans ran on repealing the Affordable Care Act. They ran on stripping healthcare insurance from poor people. <laughs> you know, I think young physicians were worried about that. Agreed. <laughs> Lot to digest here. I, <laughs> I think you're right. I think if any, I think the this shows. Young physicians, interns, are very tuned into the political landscape and do have serious concerns about what's going on in our country. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a 24-hour news cycle. We're all on social media. Like, you, the exposure to political news is just unavoidable. And it's constant, right? It's nonstop. You can't just, like, tune in every night to Walter Cronkite with the rest of the country and get the same story, right? We're just, like, being bombarded on every side. A lot of Fox News and patient rooms, you know. Yeah, so I mean, I guess you could stick your head in the sand and choose to be willfully oblivious. Um, but I think as well-educated members of the electorate, I think it's our duty to know what is going on and to vote. I think you make a good point that as physicians, as young physicians, as residents, we are exposed to a lot of these forces. You know, I mean, you see the healthcare landscape through our patients right. and through their struggles and through our struggles to provide them care. And that's a direct reflection of politics and of the political landscape. And mm -hmm. that can be very frustrating, can be very disheartening. I and think, yeah, I think for a lot of people, their world doesn't change that much with politics, right? Like, mm -hmm. as long as my 401k is good, as long as the stock market's okay. I don't really care what those jokers in Washington are doing, but we're, we're seeing like real life, you know, consequences. And so it gets me real fired up. If you can't can tell. tell, we can tell. Absolutely. <laughs> it's an interesting study though. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'm just, yeah, I'll look forward to kind of, I'm sure they're going to publish more stuff in the future from the intern health study. So I'll definitely be watching for that. What do As you think? As an aside, we'll, yeah. you, I mean, Intern, you know, mental health and, and, you know, mood is also critically important, right? I mean, these are yeah. our future physicians. 
we could spend a whole other episode talking about burnout and um, fatigue and you know mental health and this is a small piece of that yeah so no this I mean I think they showed this really does play into that mm-hmm. right so so what do you think uh, will happen to the moods in the intern health study when the president gets impeached this week and then acquitted by the Senate <laughs> <laughs> who knows man <laughs> all right well, I promise we won't talk about politics Moscow, every Mitch. episode. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sorry if things got a little heavy yeah, today. Yeah. Don't so, expect uh, a lot more. We'll, we'll keep this to very spaced, few and far between in the yeah. episodes. We just had to get it out had of to my get system. It out. We, had to, well, we had to talk about it. Was it. In we had the to BMJ. let Steven. Yeah, I mean, you know. All right. Had to let Steven go to town once. So where are you going for the holidays? You going back home? Going to Nebraska, Sweet. the heartland. Nice. Good luck yeah. out there. Flat. Real flat. I think we're going to take a couple weeks off for the holidays. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Austin will be in Nebraska, I guess. I'm going to be just building Lego Hurricane. sets probably. Hurricane, right? I'm not going oh, to you're Hurricane. Not. <laughs> uh, but thanks for tuning in and persevering to the end. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Last Week in Med. If you'd like to give us feedback, please send us a message. And if you enjoy the podcast, please go rate it and tell your friends. Six stars. Happy holidays, and we'll see you in 2020. Bye.